The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, should we go back to basics? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Low back pain is a very common condition. In fact, one in six may suffer from this during their lifetime. To discuss more of the anatomy, pathology, and clinical treatments, we have a great interdisciplinary team. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Michelle. My name is Mick Storr, and I'm a senior lecturer in the physiotherapy department here at Monash University. My name is Mike Mrazinski. I'm a GP and a sports medicine doctor, and I also teach at Monash University. G'day there. My name is Chris, and I am an interested community member. Back pain is an extremely common symptom, and I know this from myself because I suffer it quite a bit as well. But how many people in Australia are actually affected by back pain? We had the statistics of one in six at the beginning, but what does that translate to in terms of numbers? Uh, Good question. The one in six people equates to about 3.7 million people suffering from back pain in Australia currently. A pretty shocking statistic is that 70 to 90% of people will suffer from lower back pain at some point in their lives, which is pretty staggering when you think about the numbers. And back pain was the third leading cause of disease burden in 2011. So it impacts our society greatly and it's so common that we should be looking into treating it as best as possible. Crikey, that's even more prevalent than I had imagined. Can we just take a step back and talk about the anatomy of the back? Anatomically speaking, we need to think about a little bit of an evolutionary perspective. Essentially, if we look back in evolutionary history, our predecessors started out as quadrupeds, which means they walked around on all four limbs. The importance of this is that the spine was actually parallel with the ground, and so this means that gravity's forces were more of an anterior to posterior position, or front to back. However, as we move to a bipedal position, the spine is now in an upright position, meaning that gravity is placing forces in a superior to inferior position, so sort of from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. This means that we have more of a compressive force on the core components of the spine, which are known as vertebra. In between these bony vertebra are these squishy discs or intervertebral discs. And this creates some flexibility and movement because each of these components can move independently to some extent, as well as in a combination. To move as a unit, attached to each of these vertebrae are these ligaments. And these longitudinal ligaments, meaning these ligaments that extend all the way along the length of the spine, they help coordinate movement across the different regions of the vertebral column. So we have components of the vertebral column in the cervical region or neck region, in the thoracic region, which is where we also have ribs extending from the spinal column, in the abdominal region, which is below our 
diaphragm or the squishy part of where we say our stomach is. And then into the lumbar region and sacral region, which is around where our hips exist. Today, we're primarily going to focus within the lumbar region because we're talking about lower back pain. And to be more specific, this is essentially from where our ribs end to where we would put our hands on our hips. So is the spine purely for mobility or is there more to it? The primary role of the spinal column is a combination of protection of the spinal cord, which is a core component to the central nervous system. So this is the part of the central nervous system that extends from the brain and coordinates information coming in from the limbs or the body and sends it back to the brain or when the brain decides to do something, sending that information through the spinal cord to the limbs and the rest of the body. So the spine's role, or the vertebral column, if we're speaking anatomically, is both mobility and stability. Are the ligaments there just to hold all these vertebrae together, or do they serve another purpose? As I alluded to before, there are these discs that help absorb some of the shock that sit between each of the vertebrae along the vertebral column or spine. And these longitudinal ligaments help keep all of the different parts of the spinal column in line, keeping the vertebrae and intervertebral discs within their position and within the spine. Yeah, I think it's very important to make the point here, Michelle, that these ligaments are extremely strong and it takes significant force to damage or injure these ligaments, such as might be seen in a high-speed motor vehicle accident where significant trauma needs to take place for damage to occur and therefore you lose overall structure of the vertebral column with potential disastrous consequences such as spinal cord injury. An important part of this is the protection of the spinal cord. The spinal cord itself communicates with the rest of the body through a series of what's called peripheral nerves, or nerves that branch off the spinal cord. However, the vertebra need to create a space so that these nerves can exit the spinal column. So if we picture an individual vertebra and it's stacked upon another vertebra, a space is created when you stack one vertebra and an intervertebral disc upon another vertebra. This space is known as the intervertebral foramina, inter between two vertebra, foramina meaning hole. Between this hole is where the nerves that go to the rest of the body come out, and they can potentially play a role in back pain. So with so many different components to the back, are there different types of back pain then? We tend to put causes of lower back pain into certain categories. Unfortunately, in about 85% of cases of lower back pain, we don't ever find the exact cause of the back pain. We know that the structures involved can include muscles, the discs that we spoke about, the facet joints in the spine, and sometimes the nerves. And we group these structures into a term called non-specific lower back pain. Again, that accounts for about 85% of cases of lower back pain. 10% of causes come from the neurocompressive issues, such as the most common being sciatica, where the disc bulges onto the sciatic nerve and causes pain radiating down the leg. And 5% come from serious pathology. For example, this could be from a cancer, compression of the nerves at the very bottom of the spine, called equina, and spinal stenosis. Other causes include fracture and infection. It's also important to remember that some hip and pelvic issues can present as lower back pain and this should be excluded during the history as well. Mike, you mentioned before that there's a small proportion of low back pain that might have serious or so-called sinister sources. 
how in clinical practice might a clinician go about sorting out the serious from the non-serious? That's a really good point, Mick. The things we look for when we're assessing a patient that comes in with lower back pain are the red flags. So essentially with the red flags and lower back pain, we're looking to exclude the serious pathology that composes that 5% that we spoke about earlier. In particular, we're looking to exclude a fracture, which may present in a patient who's had a major trauma or minor trauma in an elderly patient or a patient with osteoporosis that we know of. We're looking to exclude things like tumours or infection. And some of the red flags that we might have of a patient presenting with these would be if they were under 20 or over the age of 50, if they had known cancer or had previous cancer, if they were suffering from symptoms such as fever or weight loss, if we knew that they were immunosuppressed for whatever reason. Another red flag in lower back pain would be any neurological deficit, which would suggest that there's compression on the nerves. This may present as bowel or bladder problems, weakness in the legs, or altered sensation in the bottom. And one of the contentious symptoms seems to be that the pain's worse at night time. In my experience, pain at night can be present in other causes and not just in serious causes. You mentioned this idea of a red flag. What exactly is that? A red flag is a sign or symptom that increases a clinician's suspicion that may be something serious going on. So, Mark, if only a very small proportion of low back pain falls into this serious category, how do you deal with patients that might have an expectation that you need to send them off for further tests or imaging? It can be very difficult at times because patients have their own expectations when they come into a consultation. I think it's important to talk to the patient and explain the findings that you've done in your examination explain what you think is the cause of their back pain and to try and not scare them with a diagnosis. I think if they have some of the red flags, then it's important to talk them through that and what they may potentially be a cause of. But at the same time, you have to explain that these serious causes of lower back pain are rare and more than likely the back pain will get better on its own. Anatomically speaking, when you're referring to some of those red flags related to neurological deficits, a lot of that is because within the lumbar region, many of those nerves that go through that intervertebral foramina are going to pelvic structures like the bladder or the rectum or going to the skin around the perineum or external genitalia. Over the weekend, I was doing some gardening and I bent over to pick up a stick and I hurt my back somehow. How will I know if it's something serious or what will be the process to try and sort of identify what's going on? Well, firstly, I'm sorry to hear that you hurt yourself, Chris, and I hope that you are getting better, just like the vast majority of cases will get better. I think it's important for any clinician to perform an accurate assessment early on, make sure that there's no presence of the red flags that Mike was referring to earlier, and then start the process of education and patient reassurance to let people know that whilst we can't give a specific diagnosis, which most people find that very hard to reconcile that with, both clinicians and patients, we fit into this category of non-specific low back pain, which is the vast majority of low back pain. And the evidence is strongly suggestive that the best form of management is education, reassurance, staying as active as possible, 
once upon a time, the old take a Bex and have a lie down approach possibly reinforces fear avoidance and pain avoidance behaviours. That recent evidence, and I think I should refer here to some fantastic literature that was published in 2017 in The Lancet, which for anyone who's interested, there's a three-part series looking at the management of acute and subacute or chronic non-specific low back pain. I think the passive approach to the management of acute and chronic chronic non-specific low back pain, I think we can strongly say is not the best management. And I think it's a far more an active approach being, as I said, exercise, education, reassurance, and for this to start early. I think that's a really good point, uh, Mick. I work in a GP practice as well as in a sports medicine clinic, and I see young fit athletes coming in with lower back pain who are actively wanting to get better as soon as possible and they tend to do the best. In my GP practice, there can be some old school thinking that they need to lie down and not do anything, and they tend to do worse, and the back pain tends to rumble on for a bit longer. So it's something that's really important as clinicians. We need to educate people that pain sometimes is a good thing, and that you have to keep yourself active in back pain, even though intuitively it might not seem like the right thing to do. But also, I don't think it's bad for them to have a 10-15 minute lie down to take the load off their back in between if it's really sore. But in the main, keeping them moving and keeping them active will get them better as quick as possible. And it sounds similar to our inflammation podcast where we talked about sometimes the pain is just a sign that the body is doing what it needs to do to heal that area. And so that vascular supply that helps heal it is creating some of that pain and the inflammation. But that's a good thing. At the very beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that there should be more research into the various treatment options available. Now, the old adage that the prevention is actually better than the cure probably stands true. So how could we actually prevent back pain? I think the key to preventing lower back pain or to reducing the rates of lower back pain is educating patients about what lower back pain actually is and reassuring them that most of the time this 85% of people who have lower back pain will improve. I think the average time for improvement is between four to six weeks. Which Um, interestingly is how long inflammation takes to go away. So I think if we can get our message across about back pain a bit better, then people understand why they need to change some lifestyle aspects as opposed to just rely on medications to help. I also think that as clinicians, we need to discuss this in a kind of positive way. I think that when people come in with back pain, they can often be heart sink patients, which means that everything we do for them doesn't seem to really help. Can we ever take medications for back pain? And are there any which are more effective than others? Medication and back pain has been discussed a lot recently. There's lots of studies about certain medications and back pain. My personal opinion, I think that in the acute setting, there probably is a place for some medication for the first couple of days while there's an acute inflammatory process going on. However, when it develops into a chronic back pain, I think that medication needs to be really seriously considered before it's given out. It's probably one of the things that I think as GPs we don't do particularly well. It's easier to give somebody medication that helps them in the short term rather than go through all the exercise lifestyle changes, all of that kind of thing. But to answer your question, in the short term, I would probably give out some medication to get somebody back on their feet quicker and to get them back into their normal routine. In the longer term, I'd be more interested in them doing some lifestyle changes, maybe doing some stretching, some exercise, 
Pilates or yoga if they could, as opposed to being on strong opiate medications, which can cause more problems than do them good. Essentially, if you've got a person with chronic back pain on high doses of opiates and you've got somebody who's got pain plus an addiction, which doesn't help anybody. I'm an advocate of not giving out strong medications for back pain because it doesn't work for a start. We know that from the research. Plus, it just causes more problems when you try to get them off of it. And I remember reading a study that sometimes for a low back pain, the best thing you can do is exercise and wait, that it will resolve often on its own. Yeah, I think there's good, strong evidence to suggest that that is, in fact, the case. I think maybe people are looking for the magic answer, and I think possibly, sadly, there may be some clinicians out there willing to say they've got the magic answer. And I agree with what Mike was saying earlier. It can be difficult to say to a patient, look, I think the best thing to do now is to just soldier on and get through it. But I think if that message is reinforced across the board, messages of reassurance, education and exercise within exercise it's being as active as tolerated and I think another very strong message within that is to stay at work and to return to work as early as possible and I think if that message is reinforced across different clinicians and it's the same message each time I think the patient then becomes reassured that that's the consistency of the approach and we've got very good strong evidence to suggest that that is in fact the best way to manage these conditions. And I think these days it's part of our society that you can get a pill to help with everything almost. So if you've got a high cholesterol, you take a tablet, your cholesterol goes down. If your blood pressure's high, you take a medication, it comes down. If you get diabetes, you just take a medication and it helps. And I think sometimes people think that there's a quick fix for everything. With lower back pain, unfortunately there isn't. And patients have to put the work in to see the benefit, which can be a challenge sometimes when they just really come in to see you for analgesia or painkillers. And it's important when we're talking talking about exercises, make sure that they understand why we're getting them to do them. If you form a stronger core and you have strong lower back muscles, then this gives more of a support to your spine and essentially might prevent you from having relapses in the future. If you don't deal with the problems, then it could flare up again in the future. And when you're talking about the core, anatomically speaking, we're talking about those muscles that are helping support the spinal column. So essentially, if we build up those core muscles, because I think a lot of people think that core is just abdominal muscles, but we're talking abdominal muscles, pelvic muscles, and then those true muscles of the back that are attaching directly to the spine. If we build those up, we can take some of the strain or load off the spinal column and potentially help with decreasing back pain. I think it's also important, Michelle, to point out that there seems to be, particularly in recent years, a bit of a fixation on strengthening the core, whatever the core may be. The evidence out there does suggest that, yes, as well as back-specific exercises, I think general conditioning, general upper limb, lower limb strengthening exercises, general fitness, for want of a better term, exercises, strength and flexibility overall have been shown to not only reduce the initial incidence of low back pain or episodes of acute low back pain in patients, but does also help with recovery down the track. So essentially, the spine becomes the central position by which everything rotates and moves off of. So if you condition the whole body and you improve the movement and flexibility of the whole body, you likely will improve the functionality and decrease the pain associated with that core structure. Is there evidence to suggest that there are effective means to preventing lower back pain? Well, if I refer to, again, back to the Lancet Review, and they cite a large systematic review published in 2016, and they concluded that exercise alone or in combination with education is indeed effective for preventing low back pain. 
and the numbers are quite impressive, exercise and education reduced the risk of an episode of low back pain the next year by 45%. So I think there's some pretty strong numbers that I think we need to be aware of, even if it's a strong message to say to the patient community and population out there that yes, there are things we can do to help prevent it with some strong evidence behind us. So when I experience lower back pain next, how should I decide whether to see a GP or a physio? Well, it's a good question, and I think to some extent it doesn't matter. We're lucky in Australia is that we've got very well-trained health professionals. I think the first thing that a health professional should do as part of their initial assessment is to clarify who is the best person you should be seeing at that point in time. Doing a full, proper assessment, incorporating some of the red flag screening that we were discussing earlier, and from there, hopefully making decisions around who's the best clinician at this point in time. might be that you go and see your GP, Your GP clarifies that there's no serious underlying pathology going on, but also at the same time might say that, well, I don't think you need physio input at this point in time. Here's some basic education, reassurance, keep going on your activities, and the cases will settle over time. It might be that there's very high initial pain, and the GP may well refer on to a allied health professional, such as a physio, who can, again, reinforce, hopefully, the same messages that the patient's been given by the GP. In Australia, the patient might see a physiotherapist first, in which case the physio might decide, actually, I'm going to link in with the GP because we might have either the presence of some red flag signs or symptoms that they're not particularly comfortable handling themselves, in which case the first thing should be to send through for medical referral and medical input, or it might be to get some advice regarding potential pharmacological input. I'm really keen to find out what's going on with my back. Could I go and get myself imaged with some kind of technology? And if so, how would that be used? Well, see, that's the problem with lower back pain is that a lot of the time we don't actually know what has been the specific cause of your back pain. In reality, scanning is not going to add anything to what we do unless there are some red flags that we spoke about earlier in your history. It wouldn't add anything to our management plan if we sent you away for a CT scan. It would just expose you to some unnecessary radiation. But also the problem with scans is that it flags up some incidental findings that might give you a diagnosis that doesn't really help you. For example, I see a lot of people who come to me with MRI scans and CT scans of the lower back and they've got degenerative disc disease, which is so common in the community. If you're old enough, you'll have some degeneration of your discs, but it doesn't necessarily give you an answer as to what's caused your back pain, but you're now pinning it on this degeneration in your discs, which you can't do anything about. So I think it's important to only scan people who really need it and when you're really worried about a serious pathology going on and to explain that to the patients and I think that we should not over-investigate lower back pain. I think you're spot on there, Mike, and I think you're backed by the literature. A large number of studies has shown that prevalence of disc bulges, and this is in asymptomatic people, people with no low back pain, is quite extraordinary. In fact, they've reported up to 30% of 20-year-olds have disc bulges on scans with no symptoms. And interestingly, as we get older, they report up to 60% of people in 50-year-olds and over 84% in 80-year-olds have some sort of disc pathology on a scan but are asymptomatic. I think it's really important here that we don't associate, I've got low back pain, therefore I need a scan. 
So what I'm hearing, sadly, despite being an anatomist, is that we could see a variety of different anatomical pathologies on imaging, but unless it's tied with a clear symptom on physical exam, it's really not going to be indicative of the cause of necessarily the back pain. Yeah, I think this goes back to what we were saying at the start, is that the vast majority of cases of low back pain have to, unfortunately, fall into this basket of non-specific low back pain where we can't give a specific cause of this is the structure or this is the anatomical site of your pain, which can be frustrating for all involved. However, the good thing is the vast majority of these cases do get better and do improve. And I think it's really important, even from an anatomical perspective, that those intervertebral disc bulges They really can only cause significant pathologies if they're pressing on those peripheral nerves as they're leaving those intervertebral foramina. There's plenty of locations that these disc bulges can occur that may have no implications in back pain. Up until now, we've been talking about cases like when I was in the garden and I hurt myself. That was an acute back pain caused by a very simple but foolish action. What about if you've got chronic back pain and you're living with this day after day, year after year? Sort of, What are we looking at there? You touched on a very big issue, and that is of chronic and, again, non-specific low back pain. So I suppose we can first delineate the difference between what is acute and what is chronic, and I suppose acute might be your episode in the garden. I think that's your more acute episode. Something happens, have an acute period of pain, and then it will settle over time. That period might be four to six weeks or anywhere up to 12 weeks. I think anything that's persisting, prolonging after that 12-week mark might fall into this category of chronic, non-specific low back pain. Here we're touching onto an area where we really need to talk about pain and pain science, which I think probably goes beyond today's podcast. But I think it's a huge area that we're not fully understanding of. But there's some great work coming out of, particularly, and I'll fly the flag for another physiotherapist, Laura Mosley at the University of South Australia, who's moved into pain science, does some amazing work around pain science. And if anyone wants to have a look at, he's got a TED Talk on YouTube, which you should be able to find, which really explains really nicely The phenomena, if you like, of pain and how it's very complex and not necessarily just a simple something out distance or the peripheries gets injured and therefore sends a message up to my brain saying it's hurt, that it's far more complex than that. So I think pain science and our emerging understanding of pain science through the work of people like David Butler and Lorimer Mosley, we're learning a lot more about that, but still a lot more to be discovered. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Mick, is there are changes in your brain called central sensitization, where when you've had severe back pain for a while, then your brain kind of becomes hypersensitive. And even when the stimulus is taken away that was causing your back pain, you still have the perception of pain. So it's a really complicated area, and I think there will be a lot more studies done on it. There's certainly some work being done, but it just makes it complicated to deal with, especially when you get that chronic, non-specific lower back pain, which is something we need to look into in the future. So a lot of our medical students actually think most of anatomy is known and knowable, but what we're hearing here is that there's a fair amount that's still being explored and being understood. It's important for both patients and medical students to recognize that there are limitations to our current knowledge, but there are pieces of information being learned every day. I think we're beginning to understand the importance of how psychology, physiology, and anatomy 
can all tie in. And I think it's important here to say that these things aren't made up for a patient, but there's the way you approach it and the way you manage it might be very different than treating it like a discrete injury. It sounds like much of the causes of back pain are still not understood, and many patients may go their entire lifetimes without knowing exactly the cause of their back pain. But what is important is that you have a team of clinicians who can help you manage that back pain, and we're learning new information related to back pain every day. So I really want to thank my interdisciplinary team for participating today on this very thorny, complex topic. And I want to remind our listeners that relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.